Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we're treated to a fantastic conversation between George Seawolf, director of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and fellow director Stephen Daldry. George spoke to Stephen about how he created his multi-Oscar-nominated film, from the importance of hair and makeup, directing the snappy dialogue, and working with Viola Davis and the late Chadwick Boseman. We hope you enjoy the episode. And hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Stephen Dory, and it is my joy to be in conversation with George C. Wolfe, my old friend, who is a giant of the American cultural scene and has been for many, many generations and decades. We are here talking on the, well, to celebrate, really, the release of his film, Mar Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, based on August Wilson's play of 1982, part of the 10 play Pittsburgh cycle. My first question, George, is you changed the play. In other words, you adapted the play. Um, what, well, the, my first question is, what did you change? The second question is, what approvals did you need to get to make those changes? I'll give you an example. In the play itself, we start off in the band room on stage and Ma Rainey doesn't appear for some time, maybe 40 minutes or so. What George does, thank God, is that he gives us Ma Rainey pretty much up front in an extraordinary sequence where we bang into Viola Davis, giving what is undoubtedly one of the most amazing performances, not just of this year, but of any year in this extraordinary film that George has made. But here we are. You give us uh, Ma Rainey straight up front, which I really appreciate, before you take us into this band room. George, my question again, back to the beginning. What other changes did you make, apart from delivering us the title of the film? But what other, <laughs> what other changes did you make and what approvals did you need? Did you need to go? I presume you went to August's uh, widow, but I didn't know yeah. what else you needed to go to. But what, yeah, what? I, it, 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 it was August's widow, and she was very, very open, and which is astonishing because the states can be incredibly, very, very horrible and weird and resistant. But they would not. One of the things I did, which was an easy change to make, is the play is set during the winter, and I wanted to set it in the summer. Hmm. You know, just to in, just to magnify this the states because an urban summer, as you well know, is is horrible because the sun beating down, the earth doesn't absorb it, the sun beats down on the concrete and that, and the, and that, that, that heat and that energy then bounces into your body. So as to magnify the impact of, of the journey because the whole, say from the beginning and the end, the whole film is set during one day. So I wanted to just intensify the stakes of that one day, put it on this horrible hot day in Chicago because I thought it would fuel every, everything. Another thing I did, which, you, which you've already talked about, I, I literally cut out probably 40, 40 minutes to an hour of the play because, you know, it's similar in some respects to the Iceman Cometh in which people spend an hour talking about Hickey's going to show up, Hickey's going to show up. And, you know, it's like, can, can Hickey the hell get there so we can get on with the crap? You know <laughs> It's sort of like, yeah, yeah. I figured out who you are, your bums and your losers after 10 minutes. I got that. Now where's Hickey? So, um, you know, and, 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 and the thing which I cut out was incredibly wonderful, brilliant textured storytelling, which, 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 which is thrilling to hear. And of course the actors love doing because it's just great language and great stakes. But I wanted it to be about Ma Rainey and Levy. That I, I decided that would be the focus of the film. And that anything that didn't magnify the stakes of either one of them was not gonna be in it. So that was a rather aggressive editorial decision, but, it, it, it was it, it, it was intensified at, in a really good way because Ruben Santiago Hudson, 
who is working on the screenplay in our sessions, he's, you cannot find a pure August Wilson devotee, if you will. I mean, he's, he's, he's acted in his plays, he's directed them, he did a one-man show about uh, August. And, and so our meetings were, you know, he and I have known each other for a very long time, were very, very charged because he was, he was incredibly protective of the writing. And I was very invested in respecting the writing in another way, which is giving it, magnifying the muscularity so that therefore it could breathe and be free and, um, and, 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 and we could find ourselves inside of it. And also, so I just, so, so that was that. So it wasn't, let me make this thing shorter. It was, how do I up the stakes? How do I undefine people's definition of what the South is? Because Ma has a line which she says to one up to her manager, I don't like it up here anyway, so I can take my black ass back down South. And you know, this is 1927. Historically, uh, you know, it's a, it's a time of Jim Crow. It's a, it's, it, it's a time when all those statues that we're now trying to take down were being erected and put into place. It's a time where there were record lynchings that were happening, but at the exact same time. So you have this woman who's going, I don't want to be up here. I want to go back down South. And so I wanted to explore that dynamic. Why? And because within the segregated aspects and the brutality of the South, there was also a Black community that fed itself and fed its own. And Ma was the showbiz entrepreneur. I got a list of, of the places that she performed. And in 1927, there were like 40 performances in theaters, in tent shows. She was an entrepreneur. She owned two theaters in Georgia. So she was able to carve out this, <laughs> this Southern Black empire and so I wanted to show that when she shows up in Chicago, she's not showing up as, as a person who is begging for, for approval or acceptance. She's showing up with a sense of her own power. And, and so therefore she can take on a white policeman and she can take on Irving and Sturdivant and Levy and anybody else because she's acutely aware that she doesn't need anybody else. So I wanted the audience to know that. So otherwise, so she, so she doesn't fall into sassy black woman going off on people. She's speaking from a place of power. She's speaking from a place of command. While we're talking about the original Ma Rainey, Ma Rainey also performed in Harlem. She was uh, quite a well-known performer in Harlem. She also released a song about her husband, uh, about her husband running off with a sissy boy. I, how, where does the sexuality of Ma Rainey come into this piece? Well, it's very interesting because she was, she was an out lesbian. You know, she, she was married briefly, but she was an out lesbian. And one of my favorite songs of hers, which she's in theory recording at this session, is a song called Proven On Me, which has the lyrics, I went out last night with a bunch of friends, must have been women because I don't like men. And then she goes on, and then she goes on to sing about, about, you know, how she likes to wear ties and how she doesn't take shit from anybody, you know, and she's saying, I'm a lesbian, now prove it on me. It's just sort of like the most brilliant, brilliant possible lyric you could find. So she was unapologetically, you know, who she was. And, 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 and that was reflective of, of, of the 20s in the United States. You know, there were, you know, have, have the, the leading brilliant minds of the Harlem Renaissance were gay, you yeah. know? There was this woman named Gladys Bentley who, who, who performed uh, at this, in this place called Jungle Alley and she would just sing, you know, you know dirty lyrics to, to, to popular songs of the day and, she, and she, was, she was wearing men's clothes. So there was this incredible kind of, 
odd acceptance. And I think one of the equations of that was the equation of segregation. You yeah. know, I'm from, I'm from Frankfort, Kentucky, and, the under, and, and so for the first four or five years of my life, my town was segregated. And I've gone back and done all this research, and there was this man there named Jackson Robb, who, who there are pictures of him in, in a strapless gown <laughs> with his air gun up and giving you major attitude like he's Lena Horne or something like that. He was the undertaker. Nobody was going to disapprove of him because who else was going to bury people? So, so, but it so is an ama- it's an amazing, uh, and we could spend the whole time because I'm fascinated with this acceptance of so-called queer culture within segregated society in America in the 20s and 30s. Back to to the film, what you do, I'm just, this is gonna sound like a compliment, but it is actually a compliment, George, is what you do with the dialogue is that you don't make it reflective. In other words, what you've done in honing it down is that it always feels like it's active within the actors. In other words, it feels like a boxing match within what they're doing when they're down in that basement, when they're down in the band room, it feels electric because of how you've directed it. Now, what I'm interested in, that didn't happen on the day. I know you rehearsed the bloody thing because you must have done because that is, that's technically quite tricky to get those actors in a room working together. I know you've worked with all those actors before, although I don't know which ones you, I know you hadn't worked with Chadwick before and no. I'm not sure about Viola, but you had the, the electricity of that dialogue must have taken you some time to work out. Well, to, we had a two-week rehearsal period. We, you know, I, I, I wanted the three weeks, but I ended up with two. And we rehearsed in this old, abandoned Lithuanian cultural center in Pittsburgh, which is where we shot the film. And, and I had them bring in the columns. I worked with the production designer, Mark Ricker, because he had designed this rectangular space. And I went, no, bring in the columns, bring in the columns. And the DP, Tobias, was there. And I saw them looking at each other, halfway rolling their eyes at each other, like he's going to make our life hell. Because it's interesting that you said that, because I wanted the four columns were, to me, the post of, a, of the corners of a boxing ring. Right. And, you know, and that's what I wanted. So I wanted, instead of throwing, instead of throwing punches, so I was like, Marini meets Raging Bull. Instead of throwing punches, the language is they're, they're, they're jabbing each other with the language, they're scoring points. One of the things that we talked about when we were in rehearsal, I was stressed to them, know when you just, know when you just punch the shit out of somebody, know when you are retreating, know when you are coming back, know, know when you are winning and losing at any given moment when you're in that basement and, 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 and know when you are holding on to a, a, a punch that was really strong so that therefore, you know, 15 minutes later, you can come back with something that has the edge of having been punched 15 minutes earlier. So we spent a lot of time just talking about that when you're winning, when you're losing, when it's going away. And, and, and I, during that two week time, I, I worked with everybody and I, I, I staged in a very crude way some of the um, some of the scenes in the rehearsal room with the guys. They were also when they would leave rehearsal, they go to tutoring sessions with their with their with their musical guys because I wanted all the fingering to be f- as flawlessly perfect as it possibly could be. So yeah, they would just inundate. Looks pretty great. I mean, the fingering. I mean, the musical fingering looks fantastic. But we've all been in those rehearsal rooms, George. I mean, as, uh, and sometimes you know you get a rehearsal room with, with all those actors. Sometimes they do it. Sometimes they don't. You know, it's one of the great frustrations about making a movie is that mm-hmm. they, oh, I'll wait for the day. There must have come a moment with Chadwick that you must have come a moment where you thought, well, is he going to do it? Did he do it in the rehearsal room or did he wait for the day? 
Well, it was no one really waited. That was it was really interesting. At one point, we were we we had finished, you know, moving around in space, and we were just sitting around. I'll never forget this day. We were just sitting around halfway talking, and then it sort of organically evolved into the big scene where he curses God, and 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 the actors were just sort of talking, and 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 nobody was putting in a tremendous amount of effort to reach for any emotional peaks. And he was just talking and talking. We had been, this was toward the end of the rehearsal period. And all of a sudden it became very raw and very real. And, and he ended up going to this place emotionally that, that was, he had no skin on, no protection. And it just became, and he just exploded emotionally. And then afterwards he violently sobbed. Oh just started God. sobbing and Coleman hugged him. And, 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 and I realized that in the course of the process, what was happening, which is really wonderfully ideal, is that they were sl slowly shedding their protective skin and making themselves available to the language. And, and, and it was an incredible turning point. And, 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 and every day <laughs> when we were shooting, like literally almost every day or every other day, Chad would come up to me and say, thank God we've had those two weeks. Thank God we had those two but weeks. But when that happened in the rehearsal room, George, did you go, I hope he can do that again? I mean, did you go, he's done it, he's done it. Or did you go, and you've got to do it again when we shoot it? Or yeah, he'll do it again because, yeah, interesting, because they were all, all the actors were incredibly, yeah, I, you know, I've done the film where they go, oh, no, I'm saving it. I know I'm saving it. And, and you believe them. Whereas the actors that I were working with, they're, you know, they're incredibly, they're really flawlessly trained. They're all flawlessly trained. So it's not, it's not just touchy-feely. They're very skilled. They have the muscularity of their craft. And, 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 and the thing which, which ended up happening is that one of the incredible dynamics which happened was the sense of safety was built in the room. I, I figured out how to talk to them. They figured out how to talk to me. They felt safe with each other. So that therefore when we were filming and I think they felt this incredibly intense obligation to, for lack of better words, get it right, yeah, to yeah. not conceal anything, um, they, they, they felt safe to go there. And, and every day when we would, every day I'd clear the entire, I'd clear whatever space we were working in of everybody and I'd block it and I'd make sure they felt safe. And then I invite the DP, you know, the script supervisor in the first AD in to see it. And then I'd invite everybody else. But every single day that we worked for every single scene, it all started with them. I would yeah. take 10 minutes or 40 minutes if necessary to make sure they felt safe and grounded. Talking of, talking of safe though, George, um, how did you persuade, I presume Viola said, uh, obviously I'm not doing it because I can't sing. How did you get Viola to, to agree to do it and sing? Because that must have been a journey. Well, she said, no, you know, she said no. And then she said no again. And then she said no again. And I told, and then, and then Todd Black, the producer who was talking to her consistently, you know, because she was not, she wasn't going to talk to me. She was going to talk because she didn't want to tell, because she didn't want to tell me no. So right. she right. felt comfortable right. telling everybody else no, but that's fine. And then I said, tell her, don't, Think about the singing. We will solve it. Just don't think about it. We'll solve it. We'll solve it. And so, and so she said, okay. And then she jumped on board. And then she and I started trading emails. And then she came to New York. And I was there for the first fitting when she tried on her bodysuit. And then we talked some more. 
And, and, and then I talked to Branford about it. And I said, let's, let's find a backup. And he found this woman named Maxanne Lewis. And we recorded all the stuff with her. And then Viola sang in her scene with these dogs of mine where we were rehearsing. And I went, she actually, I thought I was duping her, but she ended up duping me because she could actually sing. And if I could know how well she could sing, I would have made her sing everything. But instead, then instead, so, so Maxine recorded the songs, then we went back and then Viola then sung along to them. And then we went back and forth and then Maxine adjusted what she was doing to what Viola was doing. So it ended up with a blend of Maxine's voice. And sometimes it's like 80% and 20%. That's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. I presume she never said yes to the project. She just carried on doing it until actually you were doing it without ever saying yes. Tell me about, but tell me about the makeup. When did you come up with that? Where did, was that her? How, who came up with that? Well, it's very interesting because um, there was all this research that Ma, Ma, would, Ma, anytime she was performing, she was dripped in sweat. She was always sweating. And, and then interestingly enough, I, when, I, when I worked on Lackawanna Blues, I worked with this woman who, who was a chorus girl at the Apollo back in the 1930s. And she, you know, you know, there weren't 27 shades for, for, for black performers. So she told me this really fabulous story that what they would do, they would take shoe polish, mix it with water, and then they would smear it under the eyes to create a shadow. Then, so I, so that was in the back of my head. Then Viola's uh, makeup person who she works consistently with is from Spain. And he, and he said that women in his family told him during the war, they would take crushed berries and they would take these, anything they could find, mix it with water and then create a makeup base. And so this thing which was happening in Spain was also happening in Harlem, sort of roughly around the exact same time. And so, and so, so he came up with this idea that I was floating around with at the exact same time. And it ended up creating this look. And Viola was, you know, just said, don't be told him, don't be polite. <laughs> and so he threw away for the purposes of doing her makeup, all brushes. And he did it all, her showbiz makeup. He did it by hand. That's amazing. So That's yeah, it's amazing. And it's sort of like, you know, black kabuki, you know, yeah. 1920s. Yeah. And, and then and she had the gold teeth and, you know, that was part of her, 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 her performance venue. And so, and then, and, and she had a horsehair wig. So uh, this woman, Mia, who works with, <laughs> with uh, Ann Roth all the time, literally ordered horsehair, I think from England, and yeah. when she got it, it was covered in lice and manure. So she had to boil it. And then she made the, like literally, she made the horsehair wig strand by strand by strand. So it, it, we were trying to go as much as we, as, as accurate as we possibly could be and with, and with, with, with the total 20s black look for her. It's just phenomenal. I mean, yeah, and, but it, it was, it was, it was, it was Viola and, 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 and Sergio, I believe his name, please don't let me get the name wrong, working together that ultimately she gave him permission to go as far as he needed to go. And well, it's 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 staggeringly wonderful. It's, it's just wonderful. Right. Back to you, sort of, a, I don't mean this to be an academic question, but what's no. the difference? 
difference between directing a play and directing a film? What's the difference? Um, well, you're dealing with actors and text, so that's very similar. Um, when, but you need to, but there's sort of like, in, in some respects, directing a film and directing a musical seem very similar to me because you have to create space. You have to create space, and when, when you're doing a music, you have to create space for the songs. And so you have to create space for the visuals. And so it frees you up to just go on a journey. It's like Chadwick's talking of Chadwick, uh, Levy's talking about that door, that door. And I was, he kept, he mentions it three or four times. I go, what's on the hell, what the hell is on the side of that door? What is on the other side of that door? And I just was, that was, I just was digging for that. And then I went, nothingness. You know, because that's that ultimately is one of the equations of 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 of, of racial dynamics and inequality in America. His, since 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 the beginning of this country, there is a promise that once this happens, everything will change. Once you once you alter this behavior, once this law gets fought, once the civil war gets done, once I have a dream is said, everything will change, and it doesn't change. It, it, it things get better, but this this transformative moment of American culture, it, 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 it isn't, and now everything is right. So I just decided that him breaking through the door at the time when he needs to break through to something, he breaks through and he finds himself trapped even more so. So I was, so I wanted to find a visual that manifested that dynamic and was, and was crucial and devastating, hopefully for him and us at that point in the film. Now, you know, and, and so the freedom to craft that landscape to do that is that's one of the fun things about film is that is that you can you can go to these places that are visually, hopefully incredibly potent and and powerful and, and unapologetic, whereas that's very challenging. Theater ultimately, I really think ultimately theater is about ideas. I think ultimately, you watch the melodrama, you watch the melodrama between the characters, but what you take home are the ideas. But in film, I I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm always looking for an image that can shatter an audience's resistance and complacency and the safety that they feel in watching something and shatter that and, 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 and find themselves completely, totally surrendering to the emotional stakes of going on. So it became very important for me to find those moments where that, that, that safety is shattered by a visual that is so potent or shattered by a raw, pure performance like Chadwick does in that aforementioned God speak or whatever, where, or at the end, when you, when you see the white band playing, we know that's historically true. We know the big mama Thornton saying you ain't nothing but a hound dog, but Elvis Presley, everybody calls it his song. But I wanted to try to end with that coda because by this time, hopefully the audience has fallen in love with the knucklehead smartness, charm, sweetness that is Levy. So that therefore when his song is stolen, we feel it personally. So it's about using the camera to create this, these moments of both intimacy and for lack of a better word, spectacle, but the spectacle has a degree of intimacy attached to it as well, if that makes any sense. That makes total sense, but just while you're talking about it, the theft of black music, the stealing of black music, the yeah. uh, appropriation of black music that you achieved at the end, I thought that was incredibly successful. I mean, I felt exactly what you were intending. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it's, um, it's exactly, I mean, there's a, um, 
Paul Whiteman um, was this was this very popular jazz uh, conductor, and he had this concert that at Carnegie Hall, which was labeled as the concert that made a lady out of jazz, i.e., sanitized jazz. Um, and so, and so he, that was my. I sort of loosely based, you know, the Paul Whiteman was also a very brilliant musician, but I loosely based that band at the end on Paul Whiteman and the conductor looks exactly like Paul Whiteman because I just, you know, and could you find a more perfect name? Paul Whiteman. So, you know, so it's just, I wanted to have that be, you know, have that band be perfectly fine and talented and it's a decent arrangement, but it would, it would not be the sound that Levy would make. And so that we feel that discrepancy, we feel it. We don't just witness it. Hopefully we feel it as well. I, I, I yeah, I really, and, and I wondered what August would, August Wilson would think about that. Would uh, I would have thought, but I'm, and you have to tell me, I would have thought he'd be really supportive of that. I, I, I think so too. And, and, and Constanza said to me, said to me, you know, he would have loved. She said, I think he would have loved. It. I think he would have loved every single thing that you were doing. You know, um, you know, because it, it was it, 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 it was fun just digging in digging in to the material and also giving myself permission to ask questions and not come up with answers right away. But to, to, to what, when, I was, when I was working with Ruben on the script, just to, I, he showed up one day and I said, we, you know, we gotta see the white band at the end because that's the other murder. When, you know, there's, there's one violation at the end of the film and then there's a cultural violation. There's a death. There's a death of this music that happens. And I want us to be inside of that. You know, what, what ends up happening between Levy and Toledo is incredibly very, very tragic. But, but there's also this larger tragedy that's going on, which is this music is being appropriated. And in the process of the appropriation, those who are crafting it are not ever going to get the credit that they deserve. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I thought August was exploring. But I wanted to manifest it in a very tangible, very specific way. Let me go back to the acting. In, um, in film, one of the things you can do is change the rhythm of a scene through editing. In yes. other words, the, it, David Lean said, which I always love this, he, David Lean said a couple of really smart things. Uh, you know, what, what, is, what is the, um, one of the most important things about being a director? He said, well, you've got to decide how fast the actors say the dialogue. Which I thought, well, that, that's a good, like, that's a good note. How fast they're going to say it? What you do is, I'm guessing that you, in terms of the work you did with those actors, is it the rhythm of speech that they're using you heard in the rehearsal room, as opposed to create that in the edit room, and that's a bit. I mean, I'm guessing because yeah. again, the actors feel in rhythm, and so many times you can watch a piece of work, particularly a piece of work where there's, there's a lot of dialogue in it, you can realize that the actors are speaking, that the, the rhythm of the scene has been dictated by the director in post, not on the moment on the floor. But it seems to me you created the rhythm of speech in the rehearsal room because it feels organic. Absolutely. quite rare. Yes, no, we, we, we had to do that. And, 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 and that's why, you know, that I, wanted to, I, wanted to, I wanted the language to spill out. It was, I wanted to feel like it was spilling out of these people's mouths. So that therefore it wasn't it 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 didn't have a sense of staginess and it didn't have a sense of calcul of being calculated or 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 heavily crafted. So I wanted it, it's like these these characters 
what you know august is a phenomenally brilliant storyteller and he writes characters who are extraordinary storytellers and it's that it, you know and it's and so these characters are southern and southern people love to talk southern people talk excessively and 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 at oftentimes repeat themselves but it's part of the rhythm of how they're conveying the story so i wanted to have you know that moment which happened with chadwick i wanted to, it's, it's spilling out of him he doesn't know that's where he's going to go he doesn't have any idea, so he finds himself there. And 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 if the rhythm is percolating along, and if you're doing it in, in to antagonize somebody or in in opposition to somebody or trying to claim a space that you feel as though you deserve but you don't have, then you're fighting for that moment. To me, it's it's sort of like I, I often think of actors in a room. While while one actor isn't telling the story, the other you know eight are sitting there trying to tell this, figure out the story they're going to tell that's going to top top the story that that person is currently telling. So they're listening, but not listening because they're thinking about how this story is gonna top. And so I wanted to create that sense of competitiveness, that sense of urgency, and that sense of when you don't have control over your entire, your life, the way you know you should, language becomes one of the places where you can exercise that control, how you dress, becomes one of the ways how you can exercise control over your life. But primarily the stories you tell, the truths or the lies that you tell about yourself are one of the means where you can assert your power, your command and your identity. And that's what language is, for, particularly for the guys in the band. It's a way that they can assert their power because they have power because Ma has power. But when they are walking in the streets at the very beginning of the film, they are acutely aware that they are in a neighborhood where they do not belong. They're acutely aware that they are better dressed than the people they are passing. And so they have to maintain their dignity, but not have it reach, not, but not expand the space that they occupy in attitude or energy. They just have to maintain it and, 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 and control it. And then the second they get across the street, and they start walking up that alley to the band room. They start talking and they start talking shit and they start telling stories and it starts spilling out of them because they've gone through this danger zone. They've gotten off the L train and they've gone through a danger zone where anything could happen to them. And then once they're in that alley, the language starts spilling out, spilling out because in part, because of the walk that they've just done. So that therefore it's their way of us reasserting, reclaiming their power, their sense of command. Right, right. You know? Right. That makes sense. George, you, you put the camera in the middle. You, I don't know how best to describe this. So, um, and actually it comes a little bit, uh, somebody, uh, Lauren Pushkin has asked a question, which I'm going to, if you don't mind, Lauren, I'm going to abbreviate in some way. But it's, you put the camera in, I'm talking about the band room, but it's also true when you're upstairs as well. Is that is that the camera feels like it's in the middle yes. of the actors? And yes. I, when I say that, there's some you know you can witness it here. You can yeah. you can see there's a scene going on, and you can go there, and you can go there, and you can go there. But somehow you do something else. You put the camera right in the middle of that action. You're you feel like you're in the middle of the room, and as Lauren says, it makes you feel like you're a cat. We the audience are a character in the room with them. So how do you make that? Just tell me through the the, the decision-making process or the creative process that led you to put the camera in the middle or to feel like the camera's in the middle? Well, I mean, it's, it's like, I remember on, it's like my, my first film was Lackawanna Blues and I went, what am I gonna do with this big old thing here? With this little piece of equipment? It's just, 
it's 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 annoying to me. Oh, and then I went, oh, I'm just I'm let's put him in the room. It's let me put so he's a character. He's John. He's John hanging out in the room. Ah, you know, right. He's there. And so that became us. That became us. I did not, there are, there are moments where you create a sense of objectivity when the guys are running at the beginning. We're witnessing it. Yeah. We're witnessing it. And, but then when we're in that band room, there's not, there is no space. And, 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 and in the recording room, there is no space. There is no space. There is no chance for us to, to maintain a degree of objectivity. We're there. We're there. And we have to bear witness to the stakes to the fun shit that's happening, but we also have to bear witness to the horror and the violation so that therefore it becomes our story. I didn't, I didn't want to, if I, if I created any moments of safety and distance, um, it was, it, it, it was just so we could get back to, to that degree of intensity. And also because one of the things that I find really fascinating when Except for now, it's all changed because of our we're, we're watching it on our TVs. But in the theater, when something is having an impact, we you lean forward in your seat. In, in in a film, when it's projected on that scale, when the film is having an impact, you lean back. And so I wanted I anytime I'm doing a film, I want to try to find those moments where it's happening all around you and you cannot escape. Just yeah. like the characters can't escape. No, I think that it's incredibly successfully done. And there's sometimes like when the because I assume the camera is you. That's what I thought. Well, yeah. the camera is in the room, sort of like Cantor. Do you know, he's wandering around this room, seeing yeah. what it's interested in. And then I go, and then did you have a? Sometimes you jump the line in a way. I'm going, oh, did you have a first AD or the, you're jumping the line? And you're going, I don't care. I don't. Yeah. I'm in the room. I don't care what I'm looking. I don't yeah. care about the rules. Yeah. I'm going to quit. Yeah, I went, yeah, I went, you know, sometimes they, the line, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then other times they go, yeah, fuck the line. You know, I'm done. It's not, you know, and, you know, and, but then other times, you know, it was, you know, uh, it, you know, it was a script supervisor who I adore, but, you know, but it's, it's like, I, I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm in it. What, what is going to, what is going to put me in it? Me, the audience, not me, George, who cares about me? Well, you are the audience. You are the audience in that sense. So well, the idea, yeah, in, 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 in some respects, but I'm, I, you know, I have this. I have this couple named Harry and Marge who come to see everything I ever do, and so I'm. I perpetually, anytime I'm directing anything, I'm thinking about Harry, not literally Harry and Marge, but I've named them Harry and Marge, and they are the people who come to see, who see, who see my films and see my plays, and I'm perpetually thinking about how do I engage them. How, how do I keep them hooked moment to moment to moment? When have, are they confused at this point? Because what, anytime somebody is confused, they shut down. So I just want to make sure they are empowered. The opening was designed for them so that therefore, by the time the first pieces of dialogue happen, they know the stakes. They know Levy is smart and charming and flirting with this girl. We don't know who the girl is. He's going to try to steal stage from Ma. Ma's not going to take this shit. I wanted them to have every single piece of information they have so that they could surrender and ride the rhythm of the dialogue. So I'm perpetually thinking about how to make sure they are empowered so that therefore they will surrender to the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I can feel your energy, you, George's energy in the room. I can feel your presence in the room and your interest. 
I mean, that's one of the reasons I love the film. I, mean, I love the film for God knows it's a great film and God knows you. there's unbelievably brilliant performances all the way through, actually. I know people will always talk about Chadwick and will always talk about Viola, but actually all the way through... I, that, think I 100% agree with you. Extraordinary uh, cast. There, it's an extraordinary cast, but there's an energy to the movie. Yeah. And it's not boring. No. No. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, you know th those band, that band room, that that th those scenes in the that first scene in the band room terrified the hell out of me, because I wanted to. I always say if I can locate the intimacy and the urgency in a story, I can do it. If I can't locate the intimacy and urgency, it's I, I it's it's it, I shouldn't do it. And and. And, and once, I, once I find that, then I know then the other secrets that are embedded in the material will reveal themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of the pandemic, where I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not clear on the timeline. Where did you finish it in terms of, where did you finish all, everything, all your finishes? When did you finish it in terms of the timeline? Of we, the we finished shooting in um, August, the very end of August, the beginning of September 2019. I yep. took two weeks off. I started editing. I was three weeks shy of finishing post. I, I finished my director's cut sometime probably in December. We had a preview in Atlanta sometime in January. And I was three weeks shy of finishing post uh, when the shutdown happened. Okay. And so I continued to do work, you know, remotely. At one point I did a loop group with 20 people in 20 different locations <laughs> during the shutdown, you know, and then I would sneak over, to, you know, and then I would finish up color timing and sound mix, you know, in a big sound stage with just three people in the room. And then I finally finished up everything toward the end of July. Oh my God. Okay. So I didn't realize you're right in the middle of, you're right, right in, the in the middle of, I mean, literally if, you know, all the work that, that was stretched out over three months, I could have done in three weeks. Yeah, God. But just on the, uh, I just, I was really interested in, in the, now I didn't know that you showed it in Atlanta in a, in a, in a you sort of had a test in Atlanta. Um, people have different attitudes towards testing movies. I personally have always loved it because I, they, I love listening to and feeling an audience. How was the test in Atlanta? Was it, what, how did they respond? It was, I, I'll tell you something, it was really, what was really fascinating is they leaned in totally. They were totally into it. When Sturdivan takes, says, here, give me that piece of music, the entire audience screamed out, no, which was really fascinating. And was that a black audience? I got to ask you. because so it, like, it was part of like, it was about 60, 40. Okay. But everybody instantly knew what that meant. Everybody instantly knew. But also by that time, what I loved is that they had fallen in love with the characters and they were listening and it was really thrilling because you, you, they were hearing a complexity of thoughts and ideas that is very rare, you know, to, uh, that is frequently very rare with, with, with black characters in film. But then at the end, it was this really fascinating thing. Then at the end, when Levy's uh, steps took Toledo, there was a voiceover that was left over, that was part of his, of, of Toledo's leftover speech. And then music played uh, for a little bit and then the lights came up and the audience 
was devastated to the point that they could not appreciate anything about the film. They could not, they, you know, this man, I mean, I mean, in, in the talk back, this man said, you know, I come home from work, I turn on the news and, and now this, I can't handle it. He said, I can't handle it. And it was very interesting. So I took out the Toledo speech because it, it, it was telling the audience what the process, because it was a coda that I brought back that speech. He has a speech earlier about leftovers and I brought back the rest of it. I took that out because it was telling them what to think as opposed to them just feeling. And then that's when I added in the sound of Ma Rainey's actual voice at the end. And I went searching for images of the real Ma Rainey and I found out there is a total of, on the planet Earth, seven images of Ma Rainey. That's it, that's it. And then, and I put that in just as a visual coda that we just was to celebrate the woman, but also, and the music survived. Maybe these characters didn't, but the music survived. And that, that, that was enough to allow people to surrender to the emotions that they are feeling at the end, but to give them a way out. It was really, really fascinating. Oh, so interesting. Because the, 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 the screening went incredibly well, loving, loving, loving it. And then they, it's not so much that they, 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 the film betrayed them. And, not, and, and just by removing Toledo's speech at the end and, and having, hearing Ma's actual voice gave, was just enough of a lift out of where they were, but it didn't, it didn't negate, you know, what had happened. It was really right. fascinating. You know, yeah. it's, you know, uh, you know, it's audiences need to know that they need to know, even if they don't know that they need to know that something survived. That's really moving. Can I, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make a, uh, a statement and see whether you agree with it, because it, it goes back to what you're saying about this screening in Atlanta. There is a, often people say, you know, in films, uh, too much dialogue, you know, you know, you do need the dialogue, get rid of the dialogue. It's moving images, it's not moving pages, doing all this sort of stuff. What I love, and that you've just confirmed this in the scene in Atlanta, is audiences if you handle it right, the audiences love dialogue. They love language. They can respond to language, like they do in a Tarantino movie, but they can get into language in a way that is visceral and exciting, yes. and that is um, um, unique to cinema. I, I know that you, language is in the theater, images are in the cinema. It's yep. not true. You yep. can put, you can mess around. 100%, yes. I agree with that 100%. And, 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 and you know, and, and the number of, of the, uh, uh, and very early on, um, you know, a couple of like, you know, Twitter people or blogger people or some people said, you know, it's still a play. And I went, no, it's not. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? And then I realized they were talking about the dialogue. <laughs> and I was just going, you know, no, and, you know, and so, I, so I, I, I've gone through because it's, it was, and, and what happened with that audience in Atlanta, they were leaning in, they were listening, they were, they were listening because they were, they were, the characters' thoughts were percolating and they're, and, and, 
and 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 the stakes were very raw and very real. And you know, there's tons of dialogue, brilliantly so, in network. You know, I know. That's and right. it's thrilling to and it's thrilling to listen. It's thrilling. It's thrilling to hear people say smart things. I'm exhilarated by that. And but it's so it's not a movie where you're like, yeah, mm, uh huh, yeah, mm, uh huh. <laughs> That's I couldn't agree with you more. That's Drive me insane. Somebody's asked in the chat, which I'm, I'm going to pass on, is um, what, the real question is, what are you doing next in film? But the, the actual question is, how do you choose a project? How do you choose a film project? I mean, what are, I mean, when people ask me that question, I go, I don't know. They choose me. I don't know. I never yeah. know. Like, I, I don't have any criteria. But what, how do you choose a film project? Well, I... I I agree with you. I mean, I think I, I you know, I thought I thought throughout my career that I was in charge, but I'm not. It's sort of like things get delivered to me and I go, oh, OK, sure. Shit. Why not? Um, um, I, I, I generally if I if I've done something, I, I want to do the exact opposite of what I've just done. I want to dive into a world where I don't know what the hell is going on or how I'm going to solve it. I remember Tobias, my DP, who did, who was brilliant at one point. He says, well, I don't know if I should do it because at one point, our first conversation, who's he's a smart, smart, brilliant, extraordinary human being. I, I, I love him. I love him as a human being as, and as an artist. He said, I don't know how to do the band rooms. I said, I don't either. That's why we should do the movie. If you know how to do it, stay home. <laughs> you know, don't do the project. Do the project that you don't know how to do because I know I'm gonna come out on the other side with, with new muscles. So I'm drawn to that which I do not understand. I'm drawn to that which I do not know how to do. You've always done that, haven't you? You've always been, yeah. you, you've never done something, you've never gone, oh, I know how to do that, then I'll just repeat that because that'll be, that's how to earn a living. No, uh, no, because I, an audience, I, I'm convinced an audience, can, an audience can smell. It's not even tell. They can smell when they are in the presence and I, when they are in the presence of a truth that was discovered just for them. And they can tell when you or the actors or the designers or whatever are recycling something that they figured out on another project. They can smell it because they can smell when they are in the presence of, of a new thought, a new idea. They can tell that that has the, the scariness of is this going to work or is this going to fail? And I think I'm drawn toward that equation of the not knowing, because I feel like in the not knowing, it brings out the, the smartest aspects of my talent. When I don't know, it, 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 it awakens this sense of, um, I, don't, I don't think it's danger so much as it, it's the sense of, well, I got to find out. Well, I got to solve it. Well, I got to figure it out. What, what the hell? How do I do that? Why is that door there? I don't know why the damn door is there. Why is, why is, why is the baby obsessed with the door? I got to solve this shit. Otherwise, oh my God, you know? So, uh, so it brings out that inside of me. I love that, George. I mean, I can so see that. George, the pandemic has robbed you of the collective group meeting of the cast uh, together in front of a yeah. audience or in front of... Is that hard? I would find that devastating. It's, 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 it's terrible. I mean, it's really, it's really terrible because, you know, everybody, I, I, you know, you know there, there are certain projects you do and you go, thank you for your brilliant performance. I hope I never see you again. <laughs> With this cast, I, I loved all of them. You know, Dusan, 17 years old, playing Sylvester. So smart, so 
curious, everybody, every single person working on the film, it was like one of those joyful experiences. And, you know, and we meet on Zoom. We meet via Zoom. Yeah. It's it just, be. you know, it's like, you know, I just, I said to them the other day, I want to, I want to be in a room with you all, you know, drinking too much and gossiping. That's so much what I really want to have happen, but it, you know, it is where it is. So we, you know, well, we George, it must be that experience that you had in Atlanta, and unfortunately, you only had it once. It's seeing it with a large group of people. Yes, and when, the scale when, of that. You know, no, when they talk back, or when they, yes. when you got silence, or indeed when they go to the toilet. But yeah, absolutely, they, absolutely, and it, and 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 the and that joyful exchange of energy is so empowering and so scary. You know, it's like I hate previews. I hate them because then because I feel like. I have no control and it activates that. And so I mean, in the theater, I always sit at the very back on the aisle so that in case they decide to attack, I can run. I remember I went, right after college, I had, I, had, I had written a play and it was done at this writer's conference in Squaw Valley. And I was so terrified to I was standing in a hallway adjacent to the theater and I was convinced that it was so terrible. Everybody, the audience had collectively decided to whisper and tiptoe out because it was so awful. And I finally got up the nerve to turn the corner and look and they were sitting there staring at the, the stage. And I realized one of the reasons why I love to direct because it gives me a job to do while they are watching the thing. So it takes me, it takes me out of myself and yeah. then I have a task that I have to do. I have to yeah. listen. I have to give notes. So as long as I have a job, I'm happy. Uh, David Penn, is, uh, who's asked a question, George, and it's probably a question on a lot of people's minds, given the, the tragedy that surrounds him. Is, do you want to just talk, just say something about um, Chadwick? Just say, I mean, obviously, he gives one of the most astonishing performances. He's one of the most, and it is one of the most astonishing performances that perhaps a highlight of his career. Can you say that? No, because he had so many other highlights, but yeah. it, was a, it was a, it's astonishing piece of work. It's a huge and profound loss in yeah. every possible way, of course. But rather than talking about the loss, do you want to just say something sure. about Chadwick? Just well, it's interesting. I would, you know, I would, I would, this is the kind of art. It, the, I would tell two quick stories. One about the kind of artist that he was. He, when I, when I first talked to him about Levy, he came to my house and we were talking and he said, I need fingering for every single number we are going to play. And I went and I called up Bradford Marcellus and said, can you arrange fingering? He said, he wants to do that. He said, I said, yes. He wants to figure out the fingering is for every single note that is being played. And he did, and he did. And I remember we, we had recorded one song two days earlier, you know, and he, the fingering was perfect, the performance, everything, all the stakes of what I was looking for, we got. And two days later, he came up to me and said, George, George, listen to this. And he proceeded to play the, the song. Wow. wow. We had already finished. He was still obsessing about the work after it had been captured on film. He was still working on it. That's one thing. The other thing, we, uh, when we filmed the scene where Dusan, the actor, uh, plays Sylvester, where the pressure is on him to get it right and he's stuttering, 
Um, you know, I had the camera, you know, three seconds away from his nostrils, you know, Viola is there, you know, all this pressure was on him. And I'm going around talking to people and setting up this and, and arguing about something or doing something. And then and Dusan told this story, which was so fascinating to me. And he sort of, in you know, he's been in command, he's 17 years old, but so smart and so strong. And he's been in command at every single moment of the filming. So I feel he's going to be fine. And he said, internally, he starts to panic just freaking out and but he's not showing it because he's that mature of a kid and that focused and Chadwick went over to he said Chadwick came over to him and says this moment is yours everybody in this room is here for you we are all here for you so don't you think about anything else don't you think about anybody else you just think about you and this moment and it's just such an incredible thing that, you know, in the middle of all this chaos, he saw this a fellow actor, this kid, and he gave him a piece of energy that calmed him down. That, so Chad, he was that, he was that sensitive and that driven and, and, and monstrously uh, ferocious about getting it right, but not at the expense of being a human being in present. That uh, is incredibly moving, uh, George, really moving uh, and an incredible loss. Um, but that's all we've got time for right now. And I just want to thank George. Thank you. For being so animated and brilliant. And it's, uh, George, I could talk to you for hours and no doubt will talk to you for hours, but that was, uh, it's fantastic to hear you talk about the movie. The movie is on Netflix now. It's, as I said, a staggering achievement on all levels. Um, please watch it. Thank you so much for being here talking to us today. Thank you for having us on Directors UK. And thank you everybody here um, for joining us today. I hope you have a lovely evening over there in London town. Nominations are now open to join the Directors UK board. If you're a Directors UK member and you care about the craft of directing and want to help build a fairer, better industry, then you should stand for the Directors UK board, whatever your experience level. Nominations for the Directors UK board close on June the 4th. Find out more at directors.uk.com slash about slash election. To take us out, here's what some of our board members had to say about their time on the board. Directors UK is an organisation that can make a difference. It's the place for directors. I first got involved with Directors UK as a relatively young director who had some concerns about what I was observing in the industry and didn't know what to do about that. And Directors UK made me feel my voice mattered. Before I joined the board, I never really worked with any other directors. It's felt like a supportive community. Being on the board has taught me that united, we're stronger. Directors UK is the one organisation where screen directors are connected. Whether we're negotiating rights deals and, and fighting for fairer pay, or we're sitting at the power tables trying to make a difference culturally, or whether it's just about bringing directors together, the director's voice is heard through this organisation. Now we are industry leaders in the issues that really affect our day-to-day -day lives. 
the qualities you need as a director really overlap well with, with the qualities you need to be a member of the board. You don't even have to be the most confident person. You just have to have ideas and want to share them. Directors UK need members on the board who are engaged, but most definitely people from all walks of life, from all over the UK, all genres. It's so important that there's representation across the board from all types of director. You absolutely need passion and enthusiasm and have a desire to change things. You need to be collaborative, open-minded, analytical. Those are all things that are directing skills anyway. Don't worry if you think you don't have the necessary governance skills because you'll learn those. This is an opportunity for you to have your voice. The status of the director creatively, professionally and financially has never been under greater threat. And we have new powerful forces to negotiate. We need a collective voice to be heard. We need to keep on fighting our corner and fight for a fair, safe space. And that's what the board will do. It's like the most tremendous engine that you can help to power. We really can make things change.